Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. You know, for marketers, 2020 marked a time when we had to make a huge pivots. Perhaps one of the biggest pivots was learning how to do more virtually. Internal meetings went virtual, events went virtual, and those like our guest and I went virtual for virtual speaking. Now, not everyone has adjusted so well. While some have tried to reinvent their marketing events into a virtual world, some have attempted to do the same thing, but virtually. One thing's for sure, we all have learned a lot about virtual in the past year, and there's still a lot that most people need to learn. Today's guest is a digital futurist keynote speaker who translates the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. He teaches companies of all sizes how to leverage technology in real time in order to engage their customers at the right time. And he has a gift for bringing people together both offline and online. He's worked in 76 countries, highlighting his passion for change, collaboration, and technology. So now, welcome to the podcast, Brian Fanzel. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And yes, we are living in a new virtual world, so uh, excited to have the conversation. Definitely. Man, 76 countries? How many of those were virtual versus real? All of them are real. Boots on ground, wow. uh, nights overnight, so, uh, not even layovers. Uh, the la- if I counted like <laughs> layovers in country, it'd be close to 100. But yeah, 76 wow. uh, boots on ground. Got some passport stamps there, man. I do. It's uh, three passports. So like, you know, I, filled up, I filled up a couple <laughs> of passports for a couple of years. Uh, I will say it was a previous, a lot of it was previous life. I worked for the government. So uh, they had me traveling to every U.S. military base outside of the U.S. So that was where a lot of it was. I'm glad you mentioned that because almost every podcast I do, whether I plan to or not, we get into the question of, you know, the fact that there's so many people who are in marketing and most of us I found did not plan or come through marketing. So you just mentioned the military. So tell me, how did you get to marketing? Well, I can tell you, um, my guidance counselor in high school and college did not do a good job of pitching marketing. Um, like <laughs> I, I feel as though like my knowledge or understanding of marketing, you know, pre uh, was really just like, are you sales enablement? Are you like the fluffy, you know, I didn't really understand it. And so I was a computer science tech guy. Like, I mean, I'm tech through and through. Uh, and so I was a contractor for the U.S. government for nine years um, in cybersecurity. So cyber, uh, I didn't take any cyber classes in school, but it was the the space where I got my clearance. And I grew a giant team uh, of 32 people uh, traveling, you know, 54 countries uh, in four years, deploying cyber tools and what I found was I kept getting budgets. And I mean, we went, we went from a $9 million budget to a $19 million a year budget to, I mean, at one point, you know, and I was, what I was really good at was what I refer to now as translating the geek speak. Um, yeah. But in many ways, what I was doing is I was the face of cyber for the government from, a, you know, like working with our contractors. And so a lot of my space, the people I would interface that were, you know, worked at McAfee or Microsoft or, you know, Apple all of them was the marketing departments of those teams. Mm. And so I started to realize like, hey, there's a, there's a connection there. And funny enough, my dream job since I was little, since I was in high school, was to be a technology evangelist after Guy Kawasaki from Apple. Yeah. And I just love what he did. I was like, he doesn't have to sell or market, but he like helps people become you know, into the cult of Apple for, you know, per se. And yeah. I just loved that, that piece. And so when I left the government, that was the job I went after. And it was so weird that I had to apply, I had to like, I had to like interview with CMOs. And I was like, wait, why is this role under marketing? Like it, it was one that I just didn't understand. I think for me, that was like the, the entry point. And at that same time is where social, I think was kind of really taking off. So for mm-hmm. me, the entry point be, was the fact I was growing a really large social following in a weird way, nothing to do with my job. I had Pittsburgh sports. Mm-hmm. I was blogging, very passionate Pittsburgh sports fan. And I had this massive following on social and then I'm interfacing with CMOs on this idea of being an evangelist. And so a lot of times they'd be like, 
like you know social like you're you're that active on twitter you're you and there was like this weird intersection and so I, when i got kind of my dream job for this data center company the first 6 months i was uh under comms uh the next 6 months i was under marketing and then the last year i was there a year and 10 days um i direct reported to the ceo and I had a dotted line to the cmo and the cio and in a way the marketing team our results were driven like, on what i could help them mm-hmm. enable and so it it became like the path that I kind of leaned into. And I will also say, uh, my, I credit my dad. My dad owned a peanut brittle company, uh, like uh, like peanut brittle, like the <laughs> the snack. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad will always say he was the head of sales. But in my mind, he is the greatest marketer. Uh, he ended up selling the company, you know, massive company. But he turned peanut brittle into, you know, he had like, he had a, a logo. He had a character. He brought in like, you know, and, and this whole time, I always said like, I'm not great at sales not realizing that technically what my dad was really showing me was he was a master marketer that could close mm-hmm. a deal. And mm-hmm. so that's how I kind of came into it. But I'm with you. It's, um, it's funny. I would say that a lot of people that didn't study marketing are surviving in this space because we look at it as like ever evolving yeah. where, you know, cause like I went to school for web design and I got out of college. I got the, like the worst decision ever because I graduated in 03. And this is right when like WordPress is taking off. I learned flash and fireworks Mm-hmm. two technologies that were getting phased out like as I was yeah. graduating and people that dropped out of high school were learning things like WordPress and front page and these things that were, were getting hired yeah. for more money than I was. And that was like my quick aha moment of like, I need to get out of being, you know, platform tool code agnostic yeah. and I want to go a little higher. So yeah, that's all I, I think that's marketing. a key thing though, because I, what I'm hearing as we discuss this is you and I are kind of first generation digital marketers and you said that's why we're hanging on. I think it's because we had a base before there was digital marketing. Yes. Right. I mean, my first job in digital marketing, I came into what was titled as a marketing position, but the, um, the CEO was also the CTO of the company. And he knew that I had built like seven or eight uh, SQL databases in access. I didn't know I knew the language SQL. <laughs> I just knew I knew the code and I knew how to make databases, Yep. which to him says, okay, well, this guy also understands relational databases and he gives me Salesforce as, uh, as an admin. That was like 10 years ago. So now, yep. you know, I'm a Salesforce expert, but I was never intended to be that. Um, I just knew marketing. I knew databases. I built the data, my first database for my DJ company. So, you know, <laughs> well, we have that connection too. I had a DJ side of the, the house for me through high school and college. That's how I was. Uh, paying bills for a while. And the funny thing is that you said that really connected for me, and I think it's important for everyone like, to think about this, is that like, if, the, if this, then that re, you know, relational conversation, right? To be able to, yeah. to map things in there, you know, part of what, I, I, I always joke, database class is the one that I was the worst at in college. Like, I just could not wrap my head around the database world, yet it was where I lived when I worked with the government. Mm-hmm. But like what that skill set, I think that's the skill set where not only do we understand like being able to incorporate data, but we also understand where things are going, where they're, you know, what, what is too much data? Cause I, I would argue big data as a problem, as you know, as we look at it from like the, was really marketers that didn't understand data or that mm-hmm. kind of methodology, right. Where it's like risk first reward and like bringing things in there. And I think that's where today, I mean, tech is integrated in every job, let's face it. But I think there is more of a, an advantage if our, if your mind works like programming or coding yeah. than anything else. And I wouldn't, I, I mean, this is coming from someone that like, I learned quickly, like working in the government that like, I had all these employees that were amazing coders and built amazing databases. We were doing SharePoint uh, distribution. I could not do it. Like I was, the, I was the guy that was able to take what they were doing and go, you know, talk to the two-star general and explain to him in, in like normal English what was going on. Like I created my yeah. job in between because I couldn't handle that level of code, but I understand the methodology at a level I could relate it. So uh, yeah, I think the takeaway no, no for anybody who's looking at marketing right now as a career, the sweet spot that we're winning in is the geeky spot between we understand the creative, we understand the geeky, we can speak to both. Yep. Um, and those who only know one or the other may be at a loss, right? Without question. Because so, I mean, it's gonna be a bob, it's gonna be a bob and weave, you know, world we move <laughs> forward, right? There'll be a little bit of creative, you know, need, but there's also tools that make creative a little bit simple. But there's also tools that make coding simple. But I think this goes back to that adage that we probably both heard a lot, right? Where like, why do I have to learn how to code HTML when there was tools that were making it? Well, now when we think about it, the way that because we now understand the structure, we understand like, you know, like for me, building out a landing page, people look at me and like, I thought you'd never had a job in web design. I was like, I didn't. 
But because I was forced to learn that kind of methodology, yeah. I can open up any kind of source code and get an idea of what's going on. And I think that is yeah. a beautiful, you know, Salesforce. And, and, and let's face it, the more connection points, we have 5G and some of these technologies that are going to bring us more opportunity. We have to be able to, to connect those dots to, to marketing and, and even, let's face it, connect those dots to the customer experience, which is the creative side. So I'm, I'm with you. There's, that's definitely the, the advantage for us. Yeah. And even from a, you mentioned a management standpoint. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a coder. I don't say I, I wouldn't claim to know CSS or HTML, but I know enough to hack it. Yep. And I know enough to say, <laughs> you if both. this has to be done, how big is this job? Yep. You know, I can say, well, I can talk to someone who does CSS or HTML and say, look, I need this line of code changed. I found it. Can't know, I don't know how to write it, rewrite it, but I know what line needs to be changed. Yep. Or I could say, let me scope this project out based on these changes. I can't make the changes, but I understand the changes. And that's a, a definite key place. Yep, I couldn't um, agree more. So, so back to you on, in your title, and I don't know if this is a self-given title or what, but digital futurist. Tell me your definition of a digital futurist and how, you know, well, we know how you got to this point, but tell us about that title. So I don't know about you, but like if someone would have said the word futurist five years ago, uh, like my version of what I believed a futurist was, was the people that were like, you know, faith popcorn. There's a lot of great minds that are thinking about like robots taking over the world and like this yeah. like world that exists where you know humans are figuring out and like that always like when someone labeled me as a futurist because i had the tech side i was like no i'm good i'm good i don't want to i don't want to play in that arena but then when i would when i would get put into these marketing roles or i would get put in you know like someone would hire me to speak and they're like oh brian you're a live video guy or brian you know you're a personal branding person the the place that they would get lost in is like brian how are you so on the bleeding edge right like what is that like you're on that bleeding edge. And so when we were looking at like the landscape of speaking, the landscape of really search, I was like, you know, for me, the digital futurist is the idea that like, I'm really connecting the dots in the digital world we're in today, but in the sense of where it fits. And so like my true definition, like my North Star is I really focus on helping, you know, audiences and leaders find the harmony between technology and humanity. And so I'm not a believer in more technology is better, but I'm also not a believer in you have to unplug to find your, your sanity. And, I, and I'm like right in that spot of like, mm. we have to manage notifications. We have to understand these pieces. So that's where digital futures kind of, uh, I lean into. And, you know, I would say, you know, the last five years, the things I was preaching were what was forced upon many of us in 2020, right? Like the idea that like, yeah. hey, digital and virtual is not going to replace what we do. It's not going to replace like human handshake, but- not this year, but maybe yeah, next if we one. invest in it, right? If we invest in it and we lean in on it, and it just happens. we'd be amazed at what it can do, right? I've I've worked with some breweries here locally in my area in Virginia that would said like, I don't want to ever do anything online. Last year they were kind of forced to figure out some kind of entry point online. Now they're coming to me and being like, Brian, I cannot believe we did not do this earlier. And and part of it is like, hey, I know I can't, you know, create the same loyalty maybe in a digital virtual space, but if I can mirror that to what you're doing offline and kind of find that harmony, like that's where. I think the magic is. So for me, it's exciting now because instead of me having to convince people it's possible, I'm hopefully now helping them see the mindset to continue to evolve. Yeah. I know pr prior to last year, um, we both had been studying and, and even teaching virtual and video, but I'm sure the reception changed 2020. And all of a sudden, we both had more people that we could teach <laughs> in one year. Yeah, um, and more competition too, if you think about it, right? Like, I mean, like all of a sudden, all these people like didn't want to play in our playground all of a sudden came in yeah. and many of them assumed it was easy, right? I would say one of the biggest lessons that I didn't expect in the virtual video space was when everyone all of a sudden was forced to do live video, virtual video, all these things, there was a tendency to be a little bit like, oh man, they're in our, like, they're in our world now. Like, like yeah. okay, but what I feel like I've learned is you know, at least from the, the audiences that I've been trying to, is that they now have more respect for what we do and what we've been yeah. doing because it's not as easy as pressing a button. It's not as easy as like what we've, and it's not just the kids on YouTube or the, you know, the TikTokers, right? I think there's a, yeah. for me, I've found this newfound, this newfound appreciation for what we do, the, the, all of the aspects, which I can tell you, if you would have asked me that in like July, August, September, <laughs> I was like, man, I'm playing in a playground. And, and truthfully, I even removed myself a little bit from competing because the new players were willing to give it away at a very low cost. And I was like, Hey, I've been building yeah. my, my business at a price cost that I'm not willing to bring down because I know there's a time we're coming back. Right. Like, so like it was a weird 
space, but I think it's we're I think we're in a beautiful spot now where there's yes, there's new creative, there's new innovation, we're learning, but I also think there's a lot of people that now have a newfound respect for this kind of space. Yeah, I think with any industry though, there's it, it's there's, there's always levels to it, you know, mm-hmm. because we were studying virtual in 2018, 2019 before we had to know. Oh yeah. It. So we'd already studied the tools, you know, the equipment, the software, all those things. And so when all these newcomers came in in 2020, because it was you know, because the, the the field was ripe, they had to begin learning. Yep. And their angles might have been, hey, let's just do it with a cell phone or let's just do it with this, which it can be done. And all of that makes sense. But I think people like yourself have more tools that you've already studied. Yep. You know, I mean, I saw you had a video like best webcam. You had like five, six, 10 different kind of webcams from a DSLR to uh, a GoPro. I right. mean, we've already tested all those things. Um, you know, I'm right now I'm talking to you. The reason I can look directly at you is because I'm looking through a teleprompter. Mm, you know, nice. Those those kind of tools are things that I had pre-pandemic yep. that those who were just coming into the game and trying to teach this stuff, they got to catch up. So yep, for sure. And know. there was a world of, I mean, I did, I, I, I did 54 one-on-one phone calls with speakers in the first 30 days of COVID. Like 54 wow. of like just people coming and some of them would come and say, I have $20,000 to throw at my studio. What would you do? Uh, and I'm like, you realize I probably started with like 200 bucks. And like, <laughs> if you added on all of the tech I have, even the ones I haven't paid for, where they sent me for free, I wouldn't re- And there was a group that I felt that was like, let me just throw the most expensive things together and that will make a virtual experience. Right. And we've, we've yeah. learned that like that's like, and, I, and in many ways we were joking pre-show like, yeah, that's I mean, I we both say. are, we both are using a roadcaster on both sides of our own and we don't even interact with others that have that. Like, I mean, I, I don't believe I've had someone in on that other side because there's also like this element of, for some of my, my the people that I know, they, they needed a USB microphone. Like we didn't, yeah, they did not need it. to do anything more. They needed a, you know, a web camera that was, you know, powerful enough. And so I think, it's, it's like, it was both worlds, right? Like one people are like, oh, well, anyone can do it because it's an iPhone. And then there was mm-hmm. like, if I threw 20,000 at it, all of a sudden I'd be good on video. No. And we've noticed both of those are, you know, there's a, there's a happy medium. And I think there's, there's tech as a crutch. And then there's also tech as like a bandaid. And I don't think it's either one, right? They have to find that like kind of right mix. And, and, you know, I think that's the beauty of, you know, you know, those of us that have been in the game a while, it's not yeah. that we know all the tech, but we understand when the right mix fits yeah. <laughs> versus, you know, one yeah. anybody who's listening right now. I mean, even, you know, on both sides of this conversation, both Brian and I have tons of toys sitting in front of us to, to make this all happen. We're recording the video, we're recording audio. We could do it locally. We could do it over the internet. We could, we got, stu- you know, studio mics and roadcasters and cameras, all these things. But even when we first connected, we had to say, okay, let's tweak this, change that setting real quick. You know, it isn't as easy as just turning everything on. So it, it isn't. And like even that's like part of it, like I don't recommend a roadcaster for all of the people I work with and coach, because I'm like, well, now I have to troubleshoot it for you. Like and, and like <laughs> like I don't know that if you're gonna be able to get it to work every time the right way. And I mean, I think we both yeah. could probably agree that when you're a team of one doing production, the the least amount of variables you have to troubleshoot if something goes wrong is the most important. And yeah. people are often shocked that as much as what I, we could use. I will streamline things down knowing what my like my like total delivery is. And, and you know, if I can only get a 10% increase in maybe quality, but that if something goes wrong, it's going to, it's going to end my entire experience. It's I'm going to shred it. that, you know, without question. I think that is, that, that's a, I mean, that's an ever changing game. And we were, we were troubleshooting this together. You taught me something on the roadcaster that I didn't realize. So, uh, you know, kudos and thank you for that. And I think that's the beauty of this. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I knew that when we talked, Making the script was pretty much irrelevant because we're going to just talk about stuff and really enjoy the conversation. Um, so I want to ask you about something, though. So I want to make sure that I get some value in here for uh, our marketing friends who do virtual events. Yep. Um, you made a statement recently that said virtual events will suck if interactive is the goal. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I believe you have the experience to back up that bold statement. So tell us why you think interactive doesn't have to be the goal. So, I mean, I was making the statement that interactive is a, should be a four letter word uh, in our, like, <laughs> because, you know, and, and what I mean by that is when we moved virtual, that became the request, right? I mean, it was, I mean, inundated with, Hey, I want to, I want, I need a virtual, I need an interactive virtual presentation. And I started pushing back every single time and said, do you want it to be interactive or do you want me to maintain the audience's attention throughout my entire presentation? That's the goal, right? And almost every time they're like, 
made us like that, like that's the option. And, and like, I think there's like a tendency where if interaction is like what we're preaching, I can ask you, I can ask the audience, where, where are you coming in from? Put a number one. If you have two kids, put, you know, I can, I can foster some interaction. Right. And like, and in a weird way, those that played in that game early on in this, you know, COVID virtual were getting rewarded, right? Because they were the metrics that were like, wow, we had, you know, 80% of our live audience entered into the chat. And I was like, is, is that your goal? Because if you ask them for like takeaways from that presentation, I would argue most of them either aren't getting it or the only thing they remember is they had to do a lot of things in the, in the chat room. And so for me, that piece of it is like, we have to reset that. And the other piece with interactive, using that as a word is it almost doesn't allow us to leverage the virtual world around us, right? Like for me, that's like the biggest mistake, I believe, and it happens both directions. You take an amazing YouTuber and you put them on stage at a live event and they're horrible, right? They're used to mm. production. They're used to, you know, multiple cuts. They're used to their own environment. And you're like, and then you take an, an amazing keynote speaker, someone that's amazing on stage and you throw them into a virtual and they're to become like a talking head YouTube. Uh, you know, we can watch it on Ted talk. Like so for me, what was required is us for to redesign the experience from saying, what are the goals of this virtual event? And for me, like, there was things that I realized that if I changed up my camera angle every six to eight minutes in a long presentation, I could maintain the audience. Like my, the numbers, you know, 388 people were watching when we started, 388 people were watching when we finished, right? And to me, that was, that was, a, that was a very valuable win, right? And then it was like, well, now I need to see how many of them engage from the start when I, like, let's say I ask a question versus the end. And I started to play around in that. And that actually led me to what I created, which was, uh, if you remember the, you know, choose your own adventure books that we had as kids, I created a virtual presentation that was that way. And so Mm. three different times we would pop up and have three choices and I would let everybody vote and whatever they chose would be the the lane we would go down. And this wasn't like every door the same behind it. It was like, do you guys want an example that talks about it from a personal brand? Do you want an example that talks about it from a a big brand or do you want an example that talks about it from a fellow employee and whatever they chose, we went. And to me, that was what I I call that participatory content, right? Uh The audience is participating. Like the interactive element, I really, I think it became almost like Facebook likes because it was the thing that we could see and we could measure and we could tell our boss. We like blindly believed that that was value. I want to dig into something you said earlier about the, the interaction part in a virtual event, when people are actually, I think it's probably a distraction to have to go take a poll. Yep. So, you know, this is a case where in a virtual event, you're distracted away from the topic to look at the sidebar, to read the comments, to understand how to react to this poll. You react to it. Your concentration is broken. Yep. Whereas with a live event, if you're on stage, you get interaction through the conversation in the context of the story. They learn more because you don't take them out of the room to come back in. Yep, it's, it's the basically same the equivalent as, of saying, go out in the hallway and take yes. a poll and then come back into the room, find your seat, move your laptop out of the way, sit back down, let's pay attention again. And not so, to mention, they might be on a mobile device, they might be on their laptop, they might be listening with headphones in, not headphones in, right? Like, I mean, the thing about the variables of the attendees. So now the technology is the focus and not your message. Oh, yeah. And like how many people click in a link on Zoom and it opens up Chrome and Chrome now says you need to update. And they're like, oh, I need to update. And they hug update and now Zoom stops. And now they're like, oh my God, I just lost my, my Zoom. And like, you know, like, and, 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 I, and then we say that like, cause that's just the world we live in. And you're like, I, I'm a big believer. The other part of this that's like kind of a pet peeve is oftentimes polls or that kind of interaction. There's a delay, right? Like there's either a delay oh, in the video, yeah. there's a delay in people interacting. The amount of people that forget to make that either part of the presentation or make people heard, like, like, cause like, that's the thing that. Like, I, I will tell you, I'm often a closing keynote speaker. Like, that's usually what I'm brought in as the closer, like bring everybody together. And it can be, it was really frustrating in a virtual space because if someone spent six hours listening to speakers that asked questions and polls, but never like highlighted it, never said like, wow, we have 40% of the audience that believe, they, they would say, oh, thank you guys for, you know, checking in on that poll. And then they would continue on their talk. When I would get up to do my presentation and I would ask people to do the poll, no one would do it. Yeah, and I was they've like. They've already been trained not to. Yeah. Like, cause like, why would you, like the presentation isn't going to change. The person's not going to change. And so like that became, I mean, I had to switch my whole model and I actually sent out a video with all my clients. They get a, a what I call managing expectations video. And mm. it's like a 30 second video where I show my Prezi overlays and I just let them know, Hey, for me, 
I need you as much as you need me. And I need you in front of a computer and I need you to be able to be, be willing to participate because it's a choose your own adventure. And by simply me saying that, they, it changed the game because now people can, because that's another thing that's weird in virtual. Sometimes people are like, hey, you know, tune in. It's a Zoom link, right? Because Zoom became like the thing. And it's 60 minutes of talking head, no interaction. You have the same link. And the next 60 minutes is we want to ask you 33 questions in the chat box. So like for the audience, when do they know when to you know, pay attention, when they can be on their phone, when they can be on their laptop. And I think that to me was part of that variance that we just kind of didn't play into before. And, and let's face it, we didn't really have the incentive 2018, 2019 doing live video side to actually make that like an yeah. understanding. I think now for marketers, for anyone that's out there, we really have to think like one of my favorite questions asked back is what percentage of your audience watches your webinar or live event or your virtual event from their mobile device? And if you don't know the answer to that yet, that's a very important one because that'll determine how big I am on the screen. It'll determine what yes. that pop-up looks like on the screen. Like there's a lot of things that can, and if you have a speaker that's not asking that question. Well, that's I, the thing. That speaker has to understand the platform, which yep. that's something that speakers had to learn too, because oh, yeah. a speaker who's, who's the best on stage, you know, you mentioned earlier, the YouTuber who has to go on stage can be crap because he's used to having his own edits and cuts in his own environment. Same thing happens for the speaker who's used to being on stage who doesn't understand he can't do the exact same presentation virtually because yep. he's going to be on a tiny little screen. He has to either choose between him or his PowerPoint, not <laughs> him and his PowerPoint. So it's so many different nuances there. It um, also made us remind us that we were pretty divas uh, offline, <laughs> right? Like I show up yeah. and like you have my PowerPoint, you, you put a mic on me, you give me a clicker. I can play the clicker slow. You put batteries in it and now I'm going. And yeah. virtual, I mean, the amount of things that we have from lighting to audio to video to the platform to interaction to a back channel, you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of MC work and I had to create a separate back channel where I have an earpiece in via another device where I can have the team talking to me about what's going on in the green room while still delivering stuff out of my mouth virtually. And like yeah. that arena versus like me and they do, like I hosted Dell Technology World in person. It was the easiest thing ever. I mean, there was there was probably 20 people that were responsible for me and doing that in virtual. It's me being responsible for these 20 different you know, jobs. And it was definitely, it's definitely been a, an interesting ride. Well, you know, when, when everyone was in, in panic mode last spring of how do I continue virtual? Um, I'm sure you did this too. I ended up doing a lot of training to other speakers. Oh yeah. Some of them speakers who were more successful than me. It's just that I was comfortable with gear and studio and being virtual and I had done a fraction of what they have done on stage, but yep. I'd done it virtual more than they had. So I ended up doing a series even for um for content marketing world. I did the, the video training course for yeah. the speakers. I was like, you know, I'm talking to these veterans here, but I was a veteran in, in audio video. I've been doing that for 20 some years. So sure. it kind of came together. Um, made me think about a mutual friend of ours, Andrew Davis. You know, he talks about, he had a video about how our marketers have made the mistake of taking in-person events and trying to do the same thing, but virtually, instead of creating a new experience that just happens to be virtual. And I think you call it reinvent versus repurpose. Right. And, and I'm going to argue, uh, here's the scarier part. They're doing it even worse in hybrid world, right? Where if I hear one more person tell me that hybrid is the best of both worlds, I'm, <laughs> I, I can't handle it. I, I literally can't handle it anymore because it's not. Like if you think about the Grammys, or the Super Bowl, there is an entire team that runs well. the on-field in-stadium production and an entire team that runs the digital world. And they are not the best of both worlds unless they have the best teams running both worlds. And what I'm finding right now, I've done a couple, of, uh, I've done three like full hybrid events. I did a couple that like I was, I was in person at a, at a studio, uh, but everyone was virtual, but I've done three uh, you know, traditional hybrid. I have, I have two coming up next week. And it is, it's, it's a difficult piece because to your point, Andrew Davis is, in my opinion, one of the, the very best speakers I've ever yeah. ha had the chance to uh, see on stage. But even, even just that idea where we're like, we move the same things virtually and it's like, you know what, like some of these things won't work, but there's also things like I, I've said this for, I reached out to all these sponsors of virtual, of, of in-person events and they're like, yeah, I'm not really getting value out of the virtual side. And I was like, do you have much data? how much attention, how many, how like, you've wanted someone to click on a link as a sponsor for like 
forever at a conference, right? Like we've used every QR code, everything. And all of a sudden we went virtual and we forgot like if we can reinvent an experience. And that to me is, that's the struggle for so many. I was recently looking at a team. I was in a meeting on a team who, these were all the people who were pulled together to pull off this event. And the word hybrid definitely was the center of the <laughs> event. And I'm looking at the people who were there. You have the people who have been doing all the in-person events. So they're experts on trade shows and booths and all those kind of things. You have the marketers who, you know, do the automation to bring in all the leads and everything. And then because it was hybrid, they brought in IT right. to do the video. I'm like, okay, so IT might can work out some firewall stuff, but who's going to look at the user experience? Who's going to look at what does virtual work like? You know, oh, why yes. is it for the people who attend this event? There's a, there was a whole gap of the audio visual and user experience missing from that group of people playing this project. That sadly doesn't surprise me. It pains me. And I will also say, if the speaker is not included in that, like I did a two and a half hour call yesterday with a video team that'll be on stage with me next Wednesday. And I said, you guys have to know where I'm walking. You have to know because that they're going to be a person on stage with me for the virtual audience. And so we have to do a dance. Like him and I have to be like pretty much in pair. And like where I would normally, you know, pivot to this part of the presentation in a certain way, I know that I'm going to need to signal that for the virtual audience. Because like my goal is to kind of create a, an experience for both. But I'm doing a two and a half hour call a week ahead of time. I'm flying in a day early so that we can do kind of like, like that blocking rehearsal on stage. Because I mean, there's 2,000 people in person, 5,000 virtually. And I know that people are paying for both. And just a standard shot of me on stage from, you know, mid screen is not going to be, is not going to cut it for the virtual audience, right? You might as yeah. well just go watch a, you know, TED Talk somewhere. You're like nothing, yeah. nothing against TED Talks, but like that's, like, and but I don't want to compete that with for a TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Like yeah. that's a, and so that is a whole nother one where, I mean, if I'm not included in that, that like that connection and I'm brought in later, which has been kind of the trend right now, that makes it really difficult for me because I almost have to come back and say, who do I need to serve? Pick one, you know, in person or virtual. And yeah. it's not comfortable for any of us. But if you say both and you don't give us enough time to work with the teams that are doing it, I think then you end up delivering failed experience for both of them because you're the camera guys in the way of the audience. And you're like mm -hmm. looking into the camera, but now you're like, I can't see my slides because they're off to the side, right? Like, I mean, like little <laughs> things. Like, I mean, like I've asked yeah. for, you know, a, I, needed a, I needed another confidence monitor because I need a confidence monitor that shows me the chat in a big enough font for those that are on virtual. But they're like, well, yeah. we can put that on the side screens. And I was like, do you think I'm ever looking at the side screen? Like, I don't care if the audience can see that there chat. Are so I, many roles are missing. Yeah, so many roles are getting missing. And, and the audience is the ones who have to suffer. And they won't know why. Correct. And even the speaker is in a position of, you know, help me be great, yes. <laughs> you know, without putting all these things in the way. Um, so let's let's pivot a bit. Um, yep. Something we mentioned before we had the, before we started recording on this session was we mentioned Clubhouse and, you know, I was all in early, but mm -hmm. I have to say I had Clubhouse fade. I faded yep. off recently before I left. I put my sister onto it. She's an artist, um, a visual or graphic artist, painter, and she's in her 60s, but she's really hip to anything that can help move her business. And she went all in on Clubhouse. She calls me today. She's like, yeah, I'm in all these groups with all these artists from around the world and we're doing shows together. And I mean, she, her business is taking off because she's all in on Clubhouse. And she tells me a story about how during Clubhouse, they were mentioning about Clubhouse demographics and someone said, well, there's nobody here in their 50s or 60s, whatever. So they're not. And she's like, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> you know, I'm here more than you are. And I actually end up speaking on Clubhouse a lot because of that. So. Since I've been kind of, I've lost a little bit of energy on it. So tell me in terms of just Clubhouse, and we'll get to the others later, but in just Clubhouse, do you think that um, the excitement's getting old or is it still growing? Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm an early adopter on a lot of these platforms and I think, you know, the fade is normal, right? I think there's an element. Um, I believe the, the creativity and innovation became a little stale um, mm -hmm. because the style of rooms. And let's face it, I, I really believe... I, social audio, I mean, anyone that's listening to this podcast, we, any, I, I, for me, podcasters are the greatest ones to listen to because the intimacy of audio is unlike anything there is. I truly believe mm -hmm. it's the greatest medium for that intimate connection, right? Because, and I, I say this all the time, when you're listening just audio, you as the, the listener get to paint the picture of the visuals that we are telling. 
yeah. you're watching us on video, we are we are dictating. You know, if you're watching a movie, right? It's why you know why does every book <laughs> horrible when it becomes a movie? It's not because it's horrible, but because when you read the book, you as the as the reader get to decide what the castle looks like. Or when you and I mm. were talking about our studios, if you're listening to this, you get to decide what the studio looks like. It, we mm. could be you know, you so you're a little bit more connected. You're, the visuals are there. And so that that audio is beautiful. And one of the missing pieces from podcasting, I believe, has always been that social interaction element, right? And we've had mm-hmm. apps like Anchor and some things come up. And so I think with Clubhouse, there is a new skill set required. There's a there's a time commitment because of having to deal with people that aren't used to ever talking on their phone in that format. Like there's and so I believe you know where Clubhouse is. You know they're funded by A16Z, which is Anderson Horowitz um, funding. I believe they're innovating. The founder, they're innovating and doing some things at a speed that I would have never guessed they would have. But because they have come competition, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, some other ones that are out there, there's a tendency for us to feel like it's not fast enough. There also is a little burnout because it feels like sometimes it can be the same conversations. I mean, let's face it, the algorithm determines a lot of that experience, right? Like, I mean, TikTok is amazing, Mm -hmm. not because of the videos and the creators. That algorithm yeah. Works one, anyone who's not used, I mean, you don't even have to be a TikTok creator. If you all of a sudden, like I'm a Jeep fan, I drive a, a Jeep Wrangler. If I watch a couple of Jeep videos and like a Jeep video, the next day, all I see is new Jeep videos in all yeah. of these creators I would have never met. And like, so TikTok ends up being a never ending exploring of new opportunities. In social audio, it was like that early on, right? Like right when you were yeah. active, right? And then there became a, a, a point where, wait a second, I'm getting served up the same conversations with the same people it's the same and so i'm gonna make a prediction i'm gonna make a bold Uh, prediction i'm glad we're recording this so i can do a gary v and come back later on and say see i told you so i predict that clubhouse will be the myspace of audio chat in other words it is it blew up everybody was on it i remember being in a nightclub one time where a guy said (laughs) i'll never do myspace this one was just starting out then it got to where everybody who had any kind of social life at all Definitely had MySpace. I mean, it was yep. ubiquitous. Oh, yeah. I think that's where we are. That's what I see is happening to Clubhouse. It's, it still may be on its incline, but at the same time, while they're doing this, Facebook, Twitter, you know, they're all quietly building a better machine, better algorithm, even LinkedIn. You know, yep. so I, I, I think that Clubhouse is getting us excited about what's coming, but they may get squashed when it comes. Even MySpace, it was great because it was so customizable. Yep. And then when Facebook comes along, we're like, this is plain. This is boring. I hate this. I can't, I can't put on flying toasters <laughs> in my black background. I can't, you know, yeah. this is horrible. I need my top nine. I need, I need, I need all of <laughs> Exactly. All that customization that we love, that we thought we love so much is what killed MySpace. And I think with Clubhouse, all the noise, all the extra rooms, the poor algorithm. And, and for me, it was the, the salespeople, people who were only doing rooms to sell something. Yep. That killed it for me. And I, I need to get back in there, but it's like it wasn't social anymore. It was like everybody who's, you know, Instagram has the fake images of, hey, I've got a mansion and a yacht and a car, and I, I'm going to save my book on how to get a mansion and a yacht and a car. Right. But that was bad enough. But on Clubhouse, it's, you know, I'm going to find five people to say that they're with me in this room and talk about how great I am. Yep. It's just, it was just too much fakery. So I had to. So the only caveat out. I'll add on to the Clubhouse side is, I believe the true advantage Clubhouse has over every one of the competitors is the serendipity of community. I yeah. discovered more people that I did not know that shared purposes and passions with me that I've never, mm. I've never experienced anywhere. Now I will say they've kind of lost that for the last two months worth of updates. They all of a sudden went into programming and like creator shows. And let's face it, these other apps, I mean, I was on Facebook's. So while we're recording this, the day we're recording this, Zuck did in a one hour debut of Facebook audio. He did it uh, this afternoon at one o'clock. Mm. I did. I watched the whole thing. The stage is the same, except it's black. Mm. Um, the interaction is beautiful. You can, you can navigate Facebook in and out when you're doing it. It is a, car, a clubhouse carbon copy. Mm-hmm. Now you can't listen to it on desktops. So, like I shared it to my, my page, but then if you go to the desktop, it just says like content unavailable on Facebook. Right. So there's still like, and so like, I've always argued like Facebook now, Twitter is a little bit different, but like Facebook is a network because really who sees your stuff? It's the people that are connected to you and like their friends. What clubhouse has is that serendipity. Like the, there are people that 
I believe are some of my closest friends at this moment mm-hmm. that were also active on the same channel as I was on social. And we mm-hmm. never crossed path. Never. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, one of my close, like uh, Andy Henriquez, he's a public speaker. We spoke at two of the same events. We both speak and talk a lot about storytelling. He does a lot on live video and we didn't know each other at all. Mm-hmm. And we discovered each other back in December because we were in a room that was talking about the myths of storytelling. We both happened to go in there. We knew no one on stage. And we've now done a show together 27 Fridays in a row on Clubhouse. And mm. for me, the fact that I was able to meet him, you know, become a great connection with him. I FaceTime and talk to his daughters that are, you know, that I still have never met him in person. And so I, I agree with Clubhouse becoming the MySpace unless they double down with that community serendipity that really right now does not exist in these social platforms that can, can still live in community because, or in Clubhouse, because when you go on Facebook, you could be going there for 47 things. When yeah. you open Clubhouse today, you're going there only for social audio. And the okay. question just becomes, is that community so that if is worth a thin, That if is a thin line. So it I agree very, with you. I agree. It's a very thin line. In fact, in addition to the, the Facebooks and uh, the LinkedIn's who are going to be doing this also, there are also independent companies. Yep. Uh, I'll put you up in case you don't know about Fanbase. Have you heard of Fanbase? Oh, yes, I have. Right. So I'm, I'm friends with Isaac Hagues Jr. So, oh, nice. and, that, and that's his 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 baby, his company. Uh, that's how I. That's actually how I heard about it. So I heard oh, okay. about it through him. So that that uh, just through watching his content and then kind of getting onboarded onto it. So that's funny. yeah. So so Ike, he um, I mean, it's it's an amazing platform. It's it's looking looking out for creators. I hope it does extremely well. I mean, I think it it looks better, acts better, monetizes better. Everything in terms of how it's set up so far. I don't know what the underlying algorithm is, but yep. being able to do so many different things. I mean, it looks like. It looks like you rolled up Facebook, YouTube, um, you know, all these things, you know, Clubhouse all into one and yeah. monetized it. So, you know, well, shout out I, to them. And I'll tell you, I have like PTSD because, you know, to this day, Meerkat, the live streaming app is still my most, you know, I have more followers on Meerkat than all <laughs> of my platforms ever combined. Right. I had over, wow. I think I, when I, it was 1.8 million, I had followers on Meerkat. That's where I was all in. And I made the mistake of believing that it was the platform that was what was powerful. And I will say, I've learned now that I'm, it's not. So I'm not all in on Clubhouse. I'm all in on social audio. I'm doing Twitter spaces. Listen to Facebook today. And I would even argue, I'm not even all in on social audio. I'm all in on intimate digital experiences, right? Because we're going to have to reinvent. Like, like, I think VR and AR are going to be led by social audio experiences more so than they've been led on by YouTube, you know, just from the idea of how we're kind of curating these like narratives and like that, that intimacy that we talked about. And so for me, like the lesson I believe, you know, from social audio, my, I, I joined the uh, first time in August on Clubhouse and I hated it. One week in, I, I, I deleted my account because I was so turned off by just the one room, uh, a bunch of, I mean, old white guys tell me how rich they were and how I need to learn from them. And I was like, I don't, I got plenty of places that are old rich rock guys who tell me like, <laughs> and uh, in November, someone kind of talked me back into getting on. And I had like that aha moment of just discovering people uh, around ADHD that I'd never had. But I will say since December to like now, you know, it's my mental health is in a better state than it's ever been because I, I can talk to people that are much like me, right? Like that I, they have that connection. Um, I believe like the, the ability for us to build those deep relationships. And I, and I will also say, if you want to like me putting my futurist hat on, I believe we're going to see this, you know, the thousand true fan model, right? That we think the, the original article was in 2008. It was made popular in Tim Ferriss's book, uh, Tool for the Titans. That idea where we no longer need to reach mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. We have a thousand true fans that are willing to invest a little bit of money, a little bit of time into us as creators. I believe that's where this is all going towards. I mean, I went live today on Instagram live for the first time in two months because Instagram sent me a message and said, Hey, we want to incentivize you. And so they're like, if you go live for 30 minutes, we're going to give you a $100 bonus. We're also going to enable badges for your community to be able to tip you. My mm-hmm. community was tipping like crazy. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, this is all, I was using my phone, using the same IG live. Mm-hmm. And I asked my audience, like, how easy is this? And like, we clicked two buttons and we're now able to support our favorite creator yeah. inside of Instagram live. And that happened today, a day of the recording. So that's what Fansbase was trying to catch up to, but Instagram and, and I think also Fanbase, working. And I think fan base has that like beautiful angle in the social audio. And, and the other piece that Zuckerberg said today, I won't take credit for it, but he said the, the, the biggest nuance in monetizing creators mm-hmm. is that the business model of creators is the most diverse business model in the world where so many creators, you could be your sister, right? Well, is she selling 
a product, but really she's selling a product that is her creation that people value it based on their connection to her, right? And or mm -hmm. their connection to how many other people want it, right? And so there's different monetization there versus and so the the platforms that enable the most amount of tools to monetize, not the singular best, I believe are going to be the so like where fan base is going. I, I love that idea of you know give me like a Patreon model, an OnlyFans model, a Twitch, you know, badge subscriber model. Like I think because I mean I'm a I'm so all in on this creator economy right now. That's I just want, I want to live in a world that people that have something that they love what they do and it's valuable to others can make a living doing that. And I believe yeah. that's where we're going. And it's so beautiful. It's kind of scary. And like for people are like, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. It was also crazy for us to say that we would be, you know, living in a, a world that was put on pause and that we would <laughs> yeah. still operate our businesses virtually, right? Like that, that was yeah. something that no one would have bought into. And so I, that's where I'm leaning towards. And uh, I mean, I love this discussion because it's, you know, you and I, right? There's, there's an element of the amount of extra things we've had to do to yeah. monetize, put food on the table that could have been really, <laughs> you know, simplified and really allowed us to do what we love doing. Probably would have helped more people in greater ways if yeah. these things came together, you know, five years ago. But uh, I think that's where we're going. Yeah. And this podcast might easily go into two parts because <laughs> the conversation is great. Now I want to finish out a few things yep. I want to hear from you, if you don't mind. No, no. But my mind. Um, so I want to get into to your thing, your, your, your thing that almost, I think you've branded it to the point where I can assure you that when I hear it, I think about you and that's press the damn button. You know, this is your version of just do it. And yep. I've, I've preached the same thing, but your continuous use of the phrase has tied it to your brand. So I even tell myself sometimes, you know, as a result of that, Lee, quit trying to overdo it. You got too many toys, just press the damn button. And of course, when I do that, I think about Brian Fanzo. So <laughs> kudos on the, on the branding of that. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so tell me about your journey in branding that phrase. You know, it, it's like I said, it's, it's not so much in that it's unique or new, but it's that, well, one, you, you're evangelizing it and it needs to be. Right. And, and two, you've branded it to the point where, you know, it's, it's a part of you. So tell me about what you've learned during this journey of getting people to press the damn button. So I love the way you set that up. That's a, uh, cause it, you know, it's funny how we think about that because we think about oftentimes like catchphrases or things as like the origin of like what in like what we're doing. And like my last name is Fanzo. And one of my most popular keynotes was think like a fan. So mm -hmm. like, you know, it played into like, you know, and I, my, my, my company is I social fans. Right. So I'm like mm -hmm. always in big and like, but I'm also like one that like, when I would hear something as simple as press the damn button, I'd be like, duh, everyone needs to hear that. Like, it's almost like an, an, a nuance to it. And so I was giving a keynote, the think like a fan keynote um, for a while. And I had one day, um, someone had come to an event, the same event tw two years in a row. And they're like, Brian, look at all these notes I took. Look at all these things that are amazing that you've inspired me to do. And I think this is the year I'm going to go live on video. And I remember stepping back and be like, dude, you, 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 you have everything. Like, you just need to press the damn button. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that direction. And I remember I walked backstage and I was like, slide nine. I hit new slide. And I just typed in like the font that was there, press the damn button onto a slide. Because I was like, you know what? I need to like emphasize this. And then I asked, the, you know, I, and I know Mark. So Mark is the guy. And I was like, Mark, I'm going to use your story on stage. I, I want to inspire people to like, <laughs> stop waiting. And I used it and I, I used the slide and the next day, like my team were having our call and I was like, so what was like the most tweetable you know, aspect of that event? And they're like, Brian, press the damn button. Like everyone's talking about it. And I was like, you gotta be kidding. I was like, well, they're talking about it because it, like I emphasize and it was a story. And all of a sudden like two or three more presentations, it became like people, that was what they kept coming up. Like, Brian, man, thank you, man. You, you inspired me to press the damn button. I'm like, I should have inspired you to think like a fan and like get you to go all these other, like, all these other things I was doing. And in a way, press the damn button, the, I think part of the reason it became so anonymous where people would, ask, the, the other question I would get was like, Brian, how do you do all this stuff on all these channels? You're a dad. You're like, and I was like, I don't have a need to be perfect. I, mm. I, I, and I've, I've shed that idea because when I used to hear perfection's the enemy I've done, it would bother me because I would say, well, now you're still telling me that perfection's achievable because if it's the mm. enemy I've done, like you're still saying like it should be a, and like, I'm a big believer in you should work towards excellence and you should do the best you can do. But I also know that you won't know what works until you try something, right? And like you and mm -hmm. I, like, I mean, I don't care how many times we've used the roadcaster. It wasn't until we both got roadcasters on both sides 
the way to try things. And so for me, press the damn button went from like, just do it on like live video and just, you know, stop waiting to even a bigger piece of, we all have a story to tell. In the days where I grew up, my dad was said, you know, Brian, your handshake is important. You know, mm-hmm. you don't burn bridges and your name is everything. You do not like, mm-hmm. you know, your name, your reputation. You know, we both grew up like that. That was our, yep. like, that's what we were instilled in us. And unfortunately, that was also led into, Brian, put your head down and let your work do the talking for you. And yes. let's face it, for many, many years, that was the result of the greatest success. But I would argue the last seven years or so, that those days have been numbered because there are bigger mouthpieces. We have, you know, Instagram, everyone has a phone. And if you're now living in a world that says, I'm going to let my work do the talking for you, you're going to be drowned out by people that are selling unicorns and rainbows and BS, right? Like they're, and you're going to be drowned out by the people that don't have your experience, but they have a loud mouth, micro, microphone for social or digital. And you don't have to like social or digital. You don't have to. We just have to admit now that like our first impressions is when someone Googles our name online. Like yeah. even, even if I'm at like a bar and someone's like, oh, my friend such and such is coming. Um, he should be here in 15 minutes. I pull up my phone, Google, look at their LinkedIn page. Mm-hmm. Like, who are they? What do I need to know? We're meeting in person, right? And so yeah. press the damn button for me also aligns to my brand and like how I kind of came on the scene and what I was doing. Because for me, like 2013, 2014, I, I had this you know, amazing job, amazing reputation, but I wasn't really known outside of like this government circle. And people would say, Brian, you're like an overnight success. Like, where did you come from? And you're doing all these things. And I was like, well, I just became really good at telling my story and pressing the damn button everywhere and anywhere. And so that's where press the damn button like lives now. But the true origin was just frustration with one attendee. I threw it in a slide and I will, I'll tell everyone, you got to listen to what people are resonating with. If you would have asked me if press the damn button would be like a mantra, I'd be like, I don't teach like one-on-one basics. Like that sounds like way too vanilla, way too boring. Like, yeah. But it's became such a, an element. It's my podcast now, the book that we've written. Like, I mean, it's become the piece for me, but it was simply typing it in regular font into a slide and then, and then listening to what the audience cared about. The, the, the main part of that is simple. I mean, it is. I've learned and I, you know, started with, I don't know when it started, but I remember Anne Hanley's book, um, Everybody Writes, Everybody writes yep. helped me remind that simplicity, using fewer words. You don't need to oh, use yes. big words. And the repetition of something that's that simple, you know, I, I made a, um, a post once on LinkedIn that sounded, it sounded arrogant as hell. But what, what it said was, I hope everyone else learns from me as much as I learned from me. And what I meant by that was, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? What I meant was, I may make a video that's just where I just press the damn button. And then I go back and look at it later on and go, okay, that seems simple as hell then, but I needed to hear that again today. Yes. You know, I've got videos where I said, you know, don't let your technology get in the way, which is kind of like me saying, press the damn button. Right. But then a year from now, I'm going, you know, I can't, I got to get my other lens in there. I can't do the video today. And like, wait a minute, look at the video you made a year ago that said, don't do that. Yes. And so that's why I appreciate as simple as it is, press the damn button. It's a reminder that I can easily remember. And luckily for you, people remind people think of you when they hear it. Right. But and you've owned that. But it, it's just the simple stuff and the repetitive stuff. And if you, uh, this is a point for I think for speakers as well. And I'm still trying to remind myself when you have this thing that you know and you speak on very well, no matter how simple it is, people need to maybe may need to hear it. Keep it simple and repeat it, and your value will grow over time. For what may be. Of course, to you is old because you've already spoke on it 10 times, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but somebody hasn't heard it yet. No matter how simple it is, it means it's going to be better communicated because it's simple. And now, yeah, you can't downplay that. You can't. And I will tell you that that took a little bit of like an ego check. You have to like kind of figure out that. And I will say, I was listening, uh, Darius Rutger, who do you in the bluefish, right? The, um, he was giving an interview one time and a huge fan of his, uh, both Hootie and the bluefish, bluefish days and, and him as a yeah. country singer. And they I'll talked tell about you like, story offline about him too. Uh, oh, nice. How about that? <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so he was talking about like, you know, like the one hit wonder or like the, um, the ones that make the radio and like, like that piece. Yeah. And he was like, I needed to learn. This was like Darius Rucker was like, I need to learn that I needed people to get familiar with me mm-hmm. to where they could learn how great of an artist I was instead mm. of me trying to get them to see how great of an artist I was and not listening to what that connection point was. And he was like, mm. He's like every country song that he's able to write now and live like the life he like those elements that he's loving. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. was because he allowed that to be. And like that to me is the press the damn button because the amount of companies that have hired me now to talk about very complex things that I love talking about and like even this mental health space, if press the damn button was not my entry point, not the thing that they knew, I might still be on the outside banging out, you know, the, the, those pieces. And so I think there, there is something beautiful about kind of us like leaning into that simplicity. And there's also an element of allowing others to take off. Like you said, you know, how like I owned it and made it a thing. I also made it very known that I wanted everyone to just, you know, there's not like, it's not like I'm trademarking it. There's not like some piece that I was like, hey, you have to kind of like, I was like, you know what? If we can get more people thinking about that when they're not going to tell their story, they're like, well, nobody cares about me. Like, why would anybody care about my point of view? And if they think, oh, you know what? Fanzo just said, press the damn button. Maybe one person views. If we get more people thinking like that, I believe we, we, we all, you know, that tide rises all ships. And so I think when I leaned into that and I had YouTubers coming to me and said, you don't care that I'm doing press. And I was like, no, go for it. I, the, for me, mm. that was part of the, that vehicle of like, hey, let's put it out there. And there were people in the comments be like, isn't that what Fanzo says? And they'll be like, yeah, he, he's, Fanzo's cool with me saying it. Like, so th- there was an element of like, I didn't need to own it because it was, there's a simplicity to it. But there's also something by not having to own it, it became mm. more associated to me than anything else. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that because I, you know, my thing was be content. And, you know, I did a keynote at Content Marketing World on B content. I got shirts that say B content. I've done all kinds of stuff with B content. Yep. Um, and when I heard someone else use it, my first thought was, okay, that's, that's odd. You know, he's still in my thing. Um, and this was somebody who, you know, when I, this is the first time it ever happened. And I actually, he tagged me on LinkedIn and I wrote him back and I was like, is that cool, man, for you to be using, you know, my thing? He's like, I'm a fan of yours. So, I mean, I, I, I'll stop. I don't mind. I just, right. I'm a fan of what you do. I said, you know what? I was wrong. Please, please use it. And then I found out there's actually a marketing company in the UK. And they, I think they even call B content. Oh, interesting. So, so I'm like, hey, you know what? You can't, you can't own these things. I'm not going to try to patent it. But uh, it's about, do you own it? Do you actually not so much legally own it, but do you own it the way you've owned press the damn button? You own it in terms of it's associated to you. People think about you when they hear it. Right. And it, it gives a great, simple message. I appreciate that. Definitely. Well, Brian, you know, we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, and that may, I, I want to go into to another topic that's unrelated, but I'll, I'll wait to maybe another another show. Okay. Um, but before we go, you know, tell us, you know, where we can find you, if there's anything new that's going on about you and, you know, how they can find you. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm on every social channel, uh, very active on social. So I always say pick your favorite channel. You don't have to follow me on all of them. I create a lot of content. Uh, so it's iSocialFans uh, with a Z or a Z there at the end. So iSocialFans. Um, and the thing I'm most excited about is this creator economy element. So I'm launching a Discord uh, server this week, uh, really to kind of bring all my community home, like all into one location um, where it's going to be, it's free. You know, anyone can come on there. I'm going to be doing you know, content in there. We're going to create some conversations. Uh, and it's connected to my creator coin. And so I have a creator coin. Uh, it's the ADHD coin. Um, and if you think about it, it's, it's not crypto, but it's in that space of like decentralization. And really what's beautiful about it for me is that my community can invest in this coin, which has you know, a dollar value. But by just holding the coin, I'm giving them access to free, merch, you know, uh, free merchandise that I'm, I'm having uh, branded some press the damn button stuff. Uh, and I'm really just trying to really you know, not only practice what I preach in that a thousand true fans, but like lean into that. So, and as someone that's uh, ADHD super powered and uh, my middle daughter was recently diagnosed. You know, I think a, a bigger passion for me than anything else is just really helping people, you know, um, embrace their vulnerabilities, look at mental health a little bit differently. And so it has that underlying element of like how I can kind of connect those dots. So uh, yeah, if anyone's interested in looking at that, it's uh, ADHDcoin.com, ADHDcoin.com. Uh, we'll redirect you to that kind of uh, world. And there's some cool things. I have some really uh, cool, I'm, something might be coming very soon with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk and Tony Robbins. So uh, awesome. I got the two of them involved in something that we're working towards. So uh, for me, it's, you know, how do we truly build a community that we all rise together and, and uh, hopefully we can uh, make that happen. But there's a lot of fun. I, I, it's long overdue. I, I know we Definitely. were trying to make this happen in the past, but uh, I, had, I had a blast, my friend. There's a lot of fun. Yeah, typically we're at, we're at events and we're both, you know, social butterflies from one group to another, you know, and so we finally had a chance. So next time we, and when we're in person, we can actually have a conversation together in person. Amen. When that, when that I'm up comes. for that. Definitely. So uh, Fanzo, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and I hope we definitely get a chance to speak in person soon. Um, thanks for the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and want to also see Brian and I, video of the podcast and others are available on the podcast section of contentmaster.com. And also, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite listening platform. We'll see you next time. 
listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.